You are good, you are good, for your love endures today. You have to say that in faith, don't you, when you watch the news. And uh, that's partly what we're going to be looking at today. That God's love endures. And I want to thank you, Richard, for these songs. I know, uh, you know, Richard flies all over the country, driving his little popper car around and wondering what to do on Sunday. But you've been inspiring today, in terms of, anyway, where I'm coming from. These are the days of Elijah. I thought, oh, we sing these songs, days of Elijah, what's all that about? But righteousness being restored. And though these are days of great trial, of famine and darkness and sword, still we're a voice in the desert crying, prepare the way of the Lord, behold he comes. It's truth. Mm -hmm. It's truth. And who, O Lord, can save themselves? Their O song could heal. Our shame was deeper than the sea. Your grace is still deeper still. And you alone can rescue. You alone can save. That's the message of the Old Testament and the New Testament. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. Thanks, Richard. Well, thank you, God, actually. Thanks, Richard. Yeah. This is Eugene Peterson. <clears throat> the human race is in trouble. We've been in trouble for a long time. Enormous energies have been and continue to be expended by many, many men and women to get us out of the trouble we're in, to clean up the world's mess. The skill, the perseverance, the intelligence, the devotion of the people who put their shoulders to the wheel to pull us out of the muck. Parents and teachers, healers, counsellors, rulers, politicians, writers, pastors are impressive. But the centre and core of this work is God. The most comprehensive term for what God is doing to get us out of this mess we are in is salvation. Salvation is God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Salvation is the biggest word in the vocabulary of the people of God. The Exodus is the powerful and dramatic and true story of God working salvation. That's his introduction to the book of Exodus. Uh, I always like his introduction to books. They're good, they're informative, make you think, wake you up. So we're looking at Exodus. Over the next five weeks, we're looking at Exodus. And my encouragement is, read the book. (laughs) Don't rely on the preacher, because we're incredibly fallible. Read the book. Let God speak to you. And if you haven't got a Bible with you now, can you please get one anyway? So feel free to stand up. Don't be embarrassed. Those of you who know me know that I find preaching really difficult. um, Because I... Scripture is holy ground. And we're talking about God here. (laughs) Not some text or doctrine or something we ought to believe. We're talking about God. And I don't want to misrepresent him (laughs) in any shape or form. And we're touching on things of faith and humongous affairs of this world. And it's not cheap. So if I get it wrong, forgive me. So get back into Scripture. Check it out. (laughs) Please. That's where all our truth lies.
I suppose my prayer for this morning is that our awareness of God would transcend our understanding or comprehension this morning somehow, just because God is so amazing and vast and wonderful, and he loves us and cares for us. We're looking at Exodus 1 and 2, the first two chapters of Exodus, and it's the faithfulness of God. And on your uh, little leaflet, which you picked up when you came in, you'll see that in the next five weeks, we're looking at different aspects of Exodus, and aspects of God, actually, over the next few weeks. So it'd be great if you read the chapters before next week and the following week. But anyway, here we are, Exodus 1 and 2. And I want to look at three things, or different perspectives. God, it's the first one, it's good news. Evil, not such good news, but a reality. And man, So I want to look at God, I want to look at evil, I want to look at man, and see how these things interact in Exodus. And I believe they interact very strongly today. And now rather than reading the whole of Exodus 1 and 2, which we could do, but I'm going to read the summary, which is in Acts chapter 7. And you'll find that on page 773 if you've got one of the church Bibles, one of these red ones. So I'm reading Acts 7, verses 17 to 34. And this is um, when Stephen was hauled up in front of the religious people of his day, the Sanhedrin, and he's going through the history of Israel. And uh, so it's a summary, if you like, of Exodus 1, 2, and 3 in this section. So starting at verse 20, uh, sorry, verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Remember, it's Stephen speaking, so it's it's, it's our people. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. 
I'll stop there. That's in the beginning of Exodus chapter 3, if you know your Bible well. It's the first few verses. We've wandered into chapter 3. Okay, now if you turn to Exodus then, it's the second book of the Bible, but I want you to turn to the end of Exodus, which you'll find is on page 71. I want to set a context for the book. It says in verse 34 to 38 of Exodus 40, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud that settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So by the end of Exodus, God is manifestly with his people. They've erected this tabernacle in the desert, and God's presence is with them 24-7, all the time, day and night. God is walking with them, hallelujah, through the wilderness. That's the context. So now we go back to Exodus chapter 1, and we find it wasn't like that at all a little bit earlier on. So within a man's lifetime, a whole nation had moved from being in abject slavery, far from living in the promises of God, to being a nation that knew God was with them, present with them all the time, leading them day by day. There's hope. (laughs) There's hope. So, Exodus chapter 1. If you want to turn back in your Bibles... It starts with a list of the children of Israel. Twelve tribes, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asha, and Joseph. Why? Because they were the people who had been given promises by God. But at this time, evil was in ascendancy. Pharaoh, he's the king, the leader of Egypt, was immensely powerful. The people considered Pharaoh was part God, part human. Sort of half divine. And we read in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 1, there was a new king who knew nothing of Joseph. So the context is that, if you remember, the children of Israel had fled into Egypt because of famine, and because Joseph was already there by the amazing providence of God, they were able to live there. But this new king was there. They reckon it's about 60 years after Joseph had died and there was a revolution. An old dynasty had passed away and Egypt was overthrown. And Upper and Lower Egypt now became one kingdom. I've got a slide of that, actually. Uh, Sorry, Colin. Just wake you up. Okay, this is a... Over in Egypt, there's various kind of relics and things all, all over the place, but this is how they used to celebrate, well, this is how they celebrated the, the tying of Upper and Lower Egypt, and this, this kind of emblem is shown in several places in Egypt. It's likely that this new pharaoh was from Upper Egypt, which, funnily enough, is in the south, because Lower Egypt is the Nile, Okay? 
And it's probably, probably he knew nothing of the Hebrews or the story of Joseph. If we can have the next slide, please. Because when... Uh, yeah, here we are. So Upper Egypt is in the south, Lower Egypt up north. Because when Joseph was alive, it says in Genesis 46, Joseph's advice to his family when speaking to Pharaoh was, when Pharaoh calls you in and says, what's your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock, just as our fathers did. And you'll be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. So they went and lived in Goshen, the Israelites. Okay, I'll put a ring around it up there on the left-hand side. The thing about Goshen is that it's between Egypt and the whole area of Canaan on the right. So this new pharaoh would have seen anyone living in Goshen as kind of being on the border with the violent tribes in Canaan. And so if Israel had gone into league with the Canaanites, then Egypt would be big time under threat. So there's a lot of politics going on here, a lot of the same thing as is going on today, frankly, posturing and who's on whose side and this kind of thing. And so as a result, Pharaoh wanted to oppress the Israeli people because they were increasing in number. So we read that Pharaoh made things hard. It says the people of God were in slavery, they built cities for Pharaoh, and their lives were bitter with hard labor. The Egyptians used them ruthlessly. We read that in chapter 1, verse 14. And worse still, we hear, we read, that Pharaoh ordered all the male children should be murdered at birth, so the people would not become greater and stronger. All the male children. That's awful. It's detestable. The girls would have lived. Um, so it seems that evil was unstoppable and relentless and in some ways, it seems very much like that today, doesn't it? And uh, up on the projector now, you'll just see a map of Syria and the adjoining countries. And you can see how this whole area, you can see Egypt there and Syria and so on. It's just a hotbed of violence, oppression, murder, wickedness, evil. But God. So we've looked a bit at evil. But God. It says at the uh, end of chapter 2, verses 24-25, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It's what it means literally. He knew. It says in the NIV that he was concerned about. God knew. So even though all this was going on, as it is today, God knows. Let's go back a few hundred years. Abraham had been called by God and was told that his descendants would become a great nation and through them all the families of the earth would be blessed. That's Genesis 12. But Abraham was unable to have children. Sarah was barren. Abraham reminded God about this in Genesis 15. You can read about it. God said to him again, Fear not, Abraham, I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. And he promised that his descendants would number more than all the stars. And then God, in the context of sacrifice and covenant, said in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 15, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards 
they shall come out with great possessions. It's amazing. God knew. So whatever we read in the press, whatever we see on the media, God knows. And God knew when he sent his son. God knew. And when preparing this and and wondering how to preach on these chapters, you can go in so many different directions because there's so much here about Jesus. And when you read Exodus, you see Jesus on every page. So just in this context, boys, males were murdered. Well, when Jesus was born, Herod said all children and all boys under two were to be murdered. And Jesus, our Saviour, came to rescue us from slavery, just like Moses was called to do the same under God's hand. And Jesus introduces a new covenant, fulfilling all the promises of God to all mankind, just as Moses brought in new covenant and laws. And through Jesus, evil is defeated. God's enemy is washed up, finished. Amen. God knows. So, Next, let's look at man. So, in this section of scripture, huge things are going on. So, Moses, this particular man, his parents, in chapter 2 and chapter 6, verse 20, we hear, we read that they were called Aram and Jochebed. They were Levites, a priestly office, and they had three children. The oldest was Miriam, the girl, Aaron, next, and Moses. I assume that because there were two children older than Moses, that actually they were born before the slaughter of all the male children. So Moses was the youngest. And we read in chapter 6 that Jochebed was actually Aram's aunt. Apparently not altogether uncommon, but I wonder what that was about. But anyway, what we know is that he was no ordinary child. We read it in Acts 7. And literally... In the Greek, it means beautiful to God. There was something about this little baby that the parents saw was beautiful to God. And we read in chapter 11 of Hebrews that by faith, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Think about this because it's It's amazing. Presumably, when Jochebed realised she was pregnant, they recognised that there was a huge danger. And when he was born, they should have killed Moses, their baby. But they kept him alive. And after three months, realised they really couldn't hide him any longer. So they took a huge risk. They put him in a little raft in the river and... The boy was spotted by Pharaoh's daughter, who just wanted him for herself. It's Valentine's Day. Perhaps she just fancied a little boy as a kind of... I don't know. We don't know, do we? But it must have been tough. So tough. Miriam, Moses' sister, was there and said to Pharaoh's daughter, Well, I'll find someone to be the nanny, and goes and gets the mother, Jochebed. So Jochebed has her son back for a season. Because in verse 10 we read, When the child grew older, she, Jochebed, took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. What was that like? How tough is that for parents? 
And interestingly, we don't know what name Moses' mum and dad gave him when he was eight days old and circumcised. We just don't know. It's not recorded. He must have had a name. And yet we hear that he was called Moses. Interestingly, um, the only person in scripture called Moses. But I wonder if it's not included because it kind of expresses the pain that actually these parents didn't have their own child in that sense. He was called Moses. Moses, the name. It's an Egyptian name, not a Hebrew name. Uh, I wonder if it's a play on words because it means to draw out, um, but it also means in the Egyptian, son. (laughs) Perhaps it's a, a play on words. And uh, I'm trying to think of an example. For example, someone here in the church, Phil, uh, Phil Goddard. Perhaps he's called Phil because his family were big when he was born, so he filled up the house. I don't know, but it's that kind of play on words. So Moses, his upbringing, he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So when he was given back to Pharaoh's daughter, he was immersed in the Egyptian culture. He was given the best education and clearly he was very gifted. And when he gets to 40, he sees two people fighting, one of whom was an Israelite. In fact, um, it's likely that this was a relative of his, just looking at the original text. Or oh, I'm told, anyway, I'm no expert in Hebrew, but there's an implication there that this may have been one of his extended family. He takes things into his own hands. He's impatient. He intervenes and he murders the Egyptian. And as we read in Acts 7, Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. There was trouble. Where did this all spring from? Was Moses kind of trying to work out his identity? Who am I? I've been brought up in Egypt and yet these are my people and it's like he didn't know who he was and there came an opportunity to prove something and it ended up in big trouble big trouble and he had to flee he fled to Midian which is beyond Goshen and he marries Zipporah and he has a son and calls the son Gershom which means a stranger here a sojourner which is, I guess, describing how he felt, who he thought he was. I'm just a stranger. I'm really not sure who I am. And for 40 years, he was out there in Gershom looking after sheep. That was it. This educated, talented man out to pasture. What was going on? He must have been questioning, why all this? What's my call? Who am I? What about all this upbringing I've had? So looking at his life, let's think about it. Forty years, then he fled to Midian. Now another forty years, rambling around with the sheep. He died when he was 120. So two-thirds of his life, have gone before we get to Exodus 3. Do some maths for yourselves. 
What about us? What about you? How long are you going to live? Where are you at in that? Do you feel confused? Have you entered in fully to your calling? There's hope, you know. God knows. God knows. However difficult your upbringing, however difficult those formative years, however difficult it's been because you've blown it or something's gone wrong or the call seems to be impossible, it's not impossible. God knows. And then we enter Exodus 3 and uh, Marky will be saying more about this next week. But he meets God. He faces his past. He becomes, we read later on, a friend of God. They speak face to face. God appeared to Moses. It's as if God had been waiting for this moment. As if God has been saying, I just want your attention. And under God's instruction, he leads over six million people for 40 years through a wilderness. He becomes the most revered Old Testament person in the New Testament. Moses turns up more than anybody in the New Testament. He's one of the cloud of witnesses that we talked of last week. Crying out to us, saying, go for it. Run the race. God is faithful. Look what he did through me. God is faithful. He built God's tabernacle amongst men. God dwelt there. He he designed this mercy world. God told him, this mercy seat. So God, where does God dwell? He dwells above a seat called mercy. Not a judge. Mercy. Between two angels who are constantly worshipping. This is the God that I want to be known as, God is saying. And his wonderful instructions through Exodus, which seem so long and detailed, they're precious. They're wonderful. They show us so much about what God is like. How merciful and gracious and kind and detailed and just he is. Hmm. So, concluding, for all of us, when we hear the news, let's understand that God is Lord of all. doesn't matter what Pharaoh calls himself. We could rattle off names of these leaders across the world. God is still Lord of all. And sometimes we have to hold on to that by faith. But let's also recognize that he's our Lord. My Lord. When I don't feel I'm up for it. Because of whatever it might be, your upbringing, your background, the fact your parents seemed to desert you, whatever it was, our confusions, failures, disappointments, it's not the end of the story. Hallelujah. What a saviour we have. Let's be attentive to God's call for the burning bush. Something beside We'd almost miss it. Let's be attentive. And let's take off our shoes and abandon to him. (laughs) But also, 
If you're a parent, let's recognize that our children are beautiful to God. Beautiful to God. But let's release our children to the purposes of God. And that can be a hard thing. It must have been so hard, wasn't it? When you think about it, for Amram and Jochebed, or I've forgotten the name, Jochebed. So hard. But they knew this was God's child and they were able to entrust their son to the providence of God. That takes faith, doesn't it? By faith, Moses' parents released him to God. By faith, Moses refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing Pharaoh's anger, and he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Hallelujah. So, we're in turbulent times, and I'm utterly convinced it's not going to get easier, but more difficult. Scripture tells us that, really. But what a God we have. What a God we have. So as we learnt last week, let's run the race. Shedding off stuff that slows us down and any sin that trips us up. And let's focus on Jesus, our Saviour, the God of Moses, who can take us through so we see God's kingdom come. We see salvation come in this generation, in this community, in this Bristol, and by the mercy of God in this UK and across the world. Are these the days of Elijah? Righteousness being restored. Although their days of great trial, of famine and darkness of sword, still were a voice in the desert crying, prepare the way of the Lord. Amen? Amen.